Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Today, it's my real pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Rob Weiss, who I'll have described a little bit about his background in a moment, but Rob is a very well-known sex addiction therapist and writer and educator who's done an amazing amount of fabulous work over the years, really cutting-edge work. And uh, we're going to talk today about some of the clients that we see at our program at Seeking Integrity, where we treat sex addiction, porn addiction, and paired drug use and sexual behavior, sometimes known as chemsex which sometimes people have a narrow view of. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. But first, I'd like to say welcome, Rob. How are you? Hi, David. It's fun to be here. Great to have you here. For those of you, the very few people that probably don't know you already, could you just describe a little bit about uh, what you're about? Well, I'm certainly not Oprah here, um, but thank you for the kindness. I think within the therapy community, I'm known as someone who, I'm a PhD in sexology, and I'm an LCSW, so I'm a social worker, Dr. Fawcett, we have the same degrees. And I'm so grateful we speak the same language. And I took those degrees and really have spent the last 25 years trying to help people who struggle with compulsive sexual behavior or the combined use of drugs or sexual behavior. I, I've worked a lot with people who've stopped being sexual and they no longer want to be because they're fearful. Um, all of these, you know, sort of intimacy related, too much sex, too little sex. I've given up on sex. I, I have too, you know, all of that stuff is sort of where my world has been in terms of books and treatment and all that. Wonderful. You just contributed so much. Well, what you mean by that, Dr. Fawcett, is that I wrote nine books, but I didn't spend years of weekends with my family or having any fun. <laughs> well, the price we pay. I know. I know that feeling. So I know you've come into this. We've kind of converged in this, but you've come in through more of the sex addiction field. But I know that you've seen people who are combining drug use and other ways of acting out along with sexual behavior. And, um, and I think sometimes that's been not really addressed properly in our field where we treat either sex addiction or substance use, but not both. And I think that's what makes us different. But is that your observation too, that they, these things need to be, uh, they have a unique dance when they come together? Certainly that, because I think among the people that I've been seeing since we've been working together, and I'm seeing more people who have compared drug and sex problems since we've been working together, I have a whole different view of them, of their drug problem. Like I, you know, I, I'd always thought like most people, well, get a drug addict sober and then deal with all the other issues. That's sort of how it goes. You know, they, they can't make decisions about sex or gambling or anything else if they're drinking and using. But what I've come to realize is that there's a population of people that you and I share, which 
they have sexual problems and you can take the drugs and alcohol, but the drugs and alcohol, a lot of the reasons why they acted out their sexual problems. And, you know, a lot of people will tell me, I knew I had problems with sex, whatever that is like trauma or abuse or compulsivity before I even started drinking and using. And you mentioned a really key word here, trauma, which I want to get back to in a second. But I, for me, I've seen over the years where there's a lot of people with these combined acting out behaviors, they'll get treated for their drug use. And everyone assumes, including the professionals, that the sexual issues will take care of themselves. And of course, they don't in certain populations. They may be very tied to the drug use. They certainly are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think, the, the importance of recognizing both. But you mentioned a, a critical key word here, and that's trauma. How do you see the relationship between trauma and these addictions as they manifest in life? Well, I think I feel like after 25 years, I've read a lot of books. I've seen lots of folks. I've run a bunch of treatment programs. I, you know, I feel like, you know, like the carpenter who comes to my house, who knows how to fix my cabinet, he just knows how to fix it, you know, and, and he knows intuitively he could also teach me. And after many, many years of doing this work from both ends, working with trauma survivors and working with people who act out with alcohol, with drugs, with all, you know, I really see the connection between people who very early in life lost the ability to trust that others would care for them on some very deep level. And they learned to turn to themselves. And, you know, unfortunately, we're built to be connectors, you know, and if I turn to you and I'm struggling, good on me, I'll, I, you know, but if I just say, well, I had a bad day, so I'm going to go take care of it myself. Then we often more tend to drink to use to, you know, use things to escape because people are what ground us, not substances or behaviors. But if you grew up with a lot of trauma, you may not have learned that people ground you in such a deep way, maybe before you even learned the language that you've spent your whole life avoiding people for comfort and looking to behaviors and substances for comfort. And that's how I put the two together. I think that's kind of a classic pathway toward problematic adult behaviors, learning how to self-soothe and learning where to get the, wrong, the comfort in the wrong ways. So yeah, that's absolutely true. With, with chemsex, or, and I'm using that as a shorthand, chemsex often is referred to that behavior of paired drug use and sex among gay men, although we certainly see that pairing across all populations, and I hope we can talk about that in a moment. But we see often with chemsex occurring with stimulants, whether it's cocaine, methamphetamine, along with other drugs as well, but there's almost always a, a stimulant on board. And that, I think we see, I would hope you agree, you see a lot of intensity seekers in the people we treat. And that's not the only form of drug, though, that, that people use, and not the only kind of relief they're seeking sometimes. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. So I have two different ways of looking at this, Dr. Fawcett, and I, I, I kind of want to express both of them. One is that I remember how HIV AIDS became first rolled out, and it was a problem that gay men had, that gay men who were partying in the drug scene and being hypersexual had, and that it was spreading among wildfire among gay men. And I think actually the original name for the disease, GRID, had something to do with gay men. We later learned that there were lots of people through lots of different ways, whether it was needle sharing or heterosexual sex as well, who were also sharing the disease, but not at the same rates. So when someone says chemsex to me, I just think, oh yeah, you know, the gay guys in the bathhouses and the sex clubs who are spending three days in a sling. And that's because that's the sort of common view of it, just like anyone with HIV AIDS was seen to be gay and in the same scene 30 years ago. But what I have learned, because interestingly enough, I didn't start working with a lot of gay men. Most of my focus has been with straight people and heterosexual people that I have watched their suffering in terms of meth, for example, just that. I work with heterosexual men who have a lot of sexual trauma, unresolved, 
and they'll do a bunch of meth and go to a, a motel or a hotel with a bunch of porn or sex workers and they'll disappear for a three-day weekend in the exact same way that a gay guy will go off to you know wherever he goes off to so for me the the whole notion that even if you're just talking about stimulants and sex that that should be in some way a label that's just applied to gay men doesn't feel right to me because it's chemicals and sex and other people struggle too transsexual people struggle a lot transgender people struggle a lot with uh, meth sex and we so I don't think we've gotten to level where culturally we're talking about that because it is still such a big issue among gay men. So that's one of the things I think about. I totally agree with that. I think it just becomes on kind of one's entry point into dealing with the population and, and one's experience. And my my practice was informed really by, by all the gay men that I served. And uh, so that was my kind of window into that. That's been the gift of kind of collaborating is that it expands and the commonalities and we can be, become better healers because we understand this broader view of things as and how it takes place. Well, what's been interesting to me in that way is you, David, when we first met, well, do you treat your gay men and your straight men in the same community? Because some communities believe that you should separate them. And I just think, well, and I often think this are, okay, if you had to pick one, which one defines your entire life more, more being male or being gay? I got to tell you, man trumps gay every time. You know, on my physical appearance, my voice, my, how I live in the world, how I walk around the world, being a man, whether I choose to, you know, explore or expose myself as a heterosexual or a homosexual, sec- that's secondary. So I already know that the men I treat, they all have similar issues because they're men. I often tell this story to the feminists that I talk to, and they're like, oh, you know, those heterosexual men, they're always staring us down, they're catcalling us, and they, you know, they, they, all the Me Too stuff kind of stuff. And women will turn to gay men and gay men will say, oh, it's just terrible the way men treat you. (laughs) But then if you get three gay men in a group and they see a hot guy walk by, they, oh, look at the buns on him, blah, blah, blah. So it's about being men. You know, it isn't about, yeah, we're more sympathetic to other populations, but we're men first. And so I think when men act out with drugs and sex, that's chemsex. And so that was one of the first interactions you and I had about how do we think about this and, and how do we look at it? Right. And I'll just, let me tell the story too. I think over the months we've worked together in this unit, I've seen some incredible healing that that is a, like a secondary benefit of the treatment we do in that we get a lot of gay men, self-identified gay men, who are, have a lot of fear about heterosexual men. And we got a lot of heterosexual men in the same group. And I've seen these kind of miracles occur where the, the gay men kind of get demystified for the straight guys. They start to have empathy for them and they connect. And the, the straight guys become much less scary to the gay guys. And then there's this incredible bonding because they're all men, they're all addicts in recovery. They all have things to learn from each other and they can see each other in the other person. You know, once you've gotten to your bottom, whatever that is with drugs or sex or whatever it is, it's very hard to look at someone and say, oh, well, how could you be out there doing that when you know what you've been out there doing? And so I do think that uh, I've always said this, that people who sexually act out and come together, they they really are a very meaningful cohort because you know, I go to 100 AA meetings or, and God love AA, but I can't talk about masturbation there. And, you know, I can go a lot of places for therapy where they won't have a clue what I'm talking about when I talk about sex and drugs together. So there have to be places and environments where people are really dealing with this, talking about this. And I think to define it as gay or straight is to sort of like say, well, why don't we just have a program for African-American men? Or why don't we just have a program for Asian men? Or yes, there's a lot in common, but there's so much more in common in being a man struggling with sexual issues and your masculinity, which all of our men are struggling with, even the ones who are married and have three kids. Right. It almost speaks to the power of stigma and these divisions that we have, that we kind of think in those 
we compartmentalize different populations. And I think that's that's been a learning experience for me, frankly, to kind of break down some of those walls and see the common problems and solutions that we can provide for people. Well, it makes sense to me, David, because you would, I mean, you, your focus has very much in your career been the gay community, the gay world. And I think that you see all the same issues that I do. <laughs> people are just people, but maybe some that are more predominant in the gay community, the gay community will sometimes claim them isn't a strange way, you know, and uh, people will claim their own issues and no, we're the ones who have the chem sex problem. It's like, well, actually, but anyway, beyond the words, you and I shared a case recently, and I, I won't ever talk about any detail that would identify someone, but we worked with someone who had sexual arousal to something that they didn't like. You know, it was a, a guy who didn't like what turned him on. And, you know, you could say that's leather or lace. You could say that's men or women or something in between. It doesn't matter what he just hated himself for what turned him on. But when he did drugs, boy, he loved doing what he loved to do. And it was very clear that until he came to peace with his deep unhappiness with his sexuality, whatever that meant for him, that he was never going to stop using because he was only able to really enjoy sexuality and come to peace with it when he was stoned. Our work, I think, is a lot about t teaching that person how to come to peace or integrate or celebrate their sexuality without having to use drugs and alcohol because that's what that's where the health is and that's where the connections are i think it's also important just at this point to say that uh because i think we have a lot of clients come in with the misunderstanding that treatment and addiction is about curing this uncomfortable attraction or uh act and it's not about that obviously it's about addiction is about numbing the feelings of that attraction sometimes but some people want to come in and get fixed from their attraction to a particular kink or or even a particular uh, gender. Helping them understand that and really come to some self-acceptance, I think, is really helpful. Well, you know, David, I've worked with many men over the years who wanted to pathologize their sexuality um, and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm married to the pastor's daughter and I've loved her since I was 16 and we've been married since we were 19 and we have five kids and I'm deeply involved in the church, but all I look at is male porn. And I've been having anonymous sex with men, you know, in various places and on apps. And can you make that addiction go away? And my answer is, um, you know, do you pick up women out there? No. Do you look at female porn? No. How do you feel about female women's bodies? I, I like what they wear. You know, that's not a problem I can solve for you by trying to convert or change. That's an orientation issue. And I think you're right. People do come in with orientation that they don't like or an attraction, a cross-gender attraction they don't like. And they say, well, that must be an addiction because it's ruining my life and it isn't who I want to be. And you can help me get rid of it. And that's a whole different deal, right? Exactly. And that really shame, you know, we mentioned trauma, but shame is another issue that I think is universal in this world. And that shame is just so deep, especially when you combine different sexual acts and different drug use and stigmatized behavior with just a powerful punch of shame that just is overwhelming for people. One of the things we do, I think, is to help people learn how to get out of that, those shame spirals that just leave them devastated. A few minutes ago, we were speaking of stimulants and how those play a role in impaired, infused sexual behavior and drug use. And a lot of that, I think, are some of the intensity-prone personalities that kind of want to get energized, sometimes in a way that, that numbs them from uncomfortable feelings, kind of lift them out and escalate them out. And those people we find using the amphetamines, and that those tend to work mostly in dopamine, which is anticipatory. It's about wanting and desire and gets, gets that sexual desire all stoked up 
And let me let me just kind of sum that up in, in just a couple of words. I think what you're saying is that people are really uncomfortable with things that they want to express a lot of passion about, but for some reason they have felt repressed or bad about. When they take the drug, they just feel great about it. Right. And, you know, the drug helps them to do whatever they want to do sexually. They have no shame about it. And it's fantastic. But then after the drug, they hate themselves and wish they hadn't done it and because they don't like the sex part. But I also think there's another side of this where people who are overstimulated in some sense, who get activated by mm -hmm. trauma, uncomfortable inner feelings, stirrings, want to kind of tamper that down. You know, it's interesting you say that because I'm thinking of a, a man that I worked with, or I think we both did. I'm not, you know, again, I want to be deliberately vague. But um, he was more into opiates and his thing was, you know, well, I'll leave the front door open and I'll, you know, get on one of the apps and anybody who comes in is fine. And the truth was he was so unconscious. I don't even know that I'm pretty sure he didn't know half the people who entered his house and entered him. And in looking at his history, when we spent a lot of time with him, his thing about sex was, I want to go unconscious. He used to do it with alcohol and then he find opiates. And why would you want to go unconscious when you're being sexual? In my mind, as a therapist, I can only think it probably has something to do with uh, something you're reenacting or something that you need to work through. Or, you know, this isn't just like a fun kink thing. This is like anybody could come to your house and murder you kind of thing. And he didn't want to celebrate his sexuality. He wanted to go unconscious around it. I think that's that uh, flip side of this that we also see and not the stereotype of chemsex, but, but this urge to kind of drop out and just go to sleep. The problem is that word, David, you know, chemsex, it's so, so pot, like easy to, it's like pro-dependence. It's an easy, many people have taught about attachment-based therapy for spouses. I don't know anyone's used the word pro-dependence. So when you get a catchy little title, it really helps. And so chemsex really has helped to identify a, I think, a cohort in the gay and queer community that needs help. But in a way, it's so weird, it's sort of been a little exclusionary. Because let me ask you this question, Dr. Fawcett. You've been an addiction specialist as long as I have. Do you think alcohol is a drug? Definitely. No question about it. Alcohol is a drug. How, and, and I'm going to quiz you. Why is it a drug? What does it do to make it a drug? How would you, like, what does it do? Like aspirin is a drug. Right. How can alcohol be a drug? I mean, it doesn't come out of a bottle. I mean, it doesn't come out, well, it does, but it's not a pill. It's for recreation. So how, why would you say alcohol is a drug? Uh, and by the way, I think if it were ever to appear today, it would never be approved but but i think it's you know, it's first of all it's it's toxic but it's mood altering very definitely it's habit forming it creates tolerance the, the body physiologically adapts to it so you need more of it and it's a very dangerous withdrawal okay so let me pause right here and ask you a question for how many years have people been getting drunk and having sex and you know is that all about disinhibiting like oh if i give her a few drinks maybe she'll have sex with me i understand how that works but you know i think we have yet to even look at and you and i will not live long enough to see the research on the relationship between alcoholism and and alcohol problems and sexual behavior which i think if you look at some of the people who choose to go unconscious well the the easiest drug to go unconscious with is alcohol and that's, by the way, probably the first drug people learn how to go unconscious with sex uh, is alcohol. I've read kind of staggering statistics about how many people, if not everyone, nearly everyone in the 90th percentile, their their sexual experience is almost always on, on with alcohol on board. You know, that's just part of the, the disinhibiting factor. And certainly uh, people who, like going back to the, the gay men I've treated who have a lot of shame and stigma about it, almost always they were using alcohol to get disinhibited enough to even think about it. 
And if you think about it, I think that's part of the human condition. We've had alcohol since we've had caves and lit fires and lived in them. And, you know, it's alcohol has been celebrated since ancient times. And I think it does have a part in our sexual lives for some of us in terms of being disinhibiting, making us more comfortable and, you know, have a drink or two. And for some people, that's really healthy. Have a drink or two in a social setting. And it does make you relax and bind together. So in and of itself, it isn't a problem. But when someone uses it not to enhance their sexuality, but to disappear from it. Right. Either either to make it possible or to disappear from it. Um, that's a problem, clearly. And I think it's so good for people to hear us. You know, this is, we are addiction people, right? We're the ones who are saying, supposed to say, alcohol is bad. Drugs are bad. You know, this kind of sex is bad. Anonymous sex is, you know, I just so don't believe that's, I just so believe that's none of our business. You know, it's more about the people who are in front of us looking for help. And that's kind of, that's kind of an old school view anyway. The old Partnership for Drug-Free America studies that basically concluded that the drug itself is bad and causes the addiction. Well, some drugs are certainly bad, but I think it's what people bring to it in terms of their shame and stigma, what they're looking for and how they combine it and the addictions that happen. So it's some people could drink alcohol and never have a problem. Zinberg said that drugs set, set and setting, right? Remember that? It's like, what is the situation that the drug is taken in? What's the context? What are the expectations? If people have different expectations about what the effects will be, they're going to have different effects. So there's a whole lot more to it than just the chemical of the drug or alcohol, for sure. Well, I think a lot about a term we use in therapy called secondary gain. And what that means is like, I do something for one reason, but I also get something back that I'm, that's what I'm really looking for. And, you know, I think for many folks, they have a, a glass of wine or a couple of drinks to relax, but they don't have the secondary gain that addicts have. Addicts use those drugs or have those drinks because that just helps them feel okay. They're not looking just, you know, just to enjoy themselves. They stopped enjoying themselves a long time ago. They're going to that behavior just to feel okay or feel like they can get through the day. or And it ceases to become the primary reason that people might drink or use, which would be to connect or be sexual or have some fun. And it becomes a secondary reason, which is just to survive emotionally. And I think that's what we're dealing with. Right. And it becomes the, the primary reason they continue to use, just to not feel horrible or just to feel okay and, or to function. Absolutely true. And that's something that really, unfortunately, that process hijacks a lot of the very sexual and intimacy ability that they're trying to find. The other thing that I'm reminded of that is a word that I think has become so important in the work we do is connection. And I think so many people that we treat who have this fused or paired drug use and sexual behavior are looking for connection with someone, that connection with sex and intimacy. And unfortunately, while I guess for some, they may feel like they have it, except for the, the guy that's unconscious, it's a setup because it's not, it's a chemical connection if, at best. And they end up feeling empty they can have a thousand sexual partners and feel lonely and disconnected. And it, it's, it's a bitter irony, I think, of that. You know, a therapist said this to me once. He said, you know, to go back and have sex over and over again, what you, when you really long for is to feel whole and connected and a part of is like eating potato chips when you're hungry. You know, in the moment, if you're hungry, you know, well, a bag of potato chips will definitely fill you up. You won't have cravings. But if that's what you're filling yourself up with and you don't really have the opportunity to find something more meaningful relationally or nutritionally, you're just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker and emptier and emptier. You need something meaningful. And so for, for the occasional bag of potato chips, have a good time if that works for you. But if that becomes your main meal in life, you're just going to be really empty and really ill. And that's who we treat. <laughs> yeah. We're really trying to help those people find alternate ways of doing that. And most of the addicts I think that I've treated, they've never really learned ways to do that. It's not like they've wandered off the path. It's like they're, they're coming in with a lack of knowledge about that self-care, how to meet, how to get their needs met in healthy ways. 
And I think that's something that we really try to encourage at Seeking Integrity, for sure. It's a funny thing, you know, working with men who are adults, because they, in their day-to-day lives, outside of these issues that are personal, sexual, romantic, most of them are, you know, going through life. They're kind of doing the intellect, you know, they either doing their job or their education, or it may have been held up by this, but but where they seem to be so profoundly impaired is in their relationships. Like even the most successful guy, like your, I don't know, Bill Clinton type, you know, I can be president of the United States, I can be an Oxford scholar, I can, you know, be admiration of many, many people, but I, emotionally, I'm, you know, I'm a nine-year-old needing every girl who walks by to notice me. <laughs> it's like, um, so there, there is a part that we were working, what I was saying is it's a little odd working with men who often whom are quite successful. Some, you know, doctors, lawyers, whatever, and out in the world, they are masters of the universe, but in our space, they don't know who they are and they don't exactly know how to be because opening up and allowing themselves to fully be known and with the potential for love or loss is something they've protected themselves from for a very long time. Absolutely. Learning how to create these kind of false selves that get all the affirmation from the world, but still don't feel right inside because inside we know that uh, it's all the uh, validation is flowing to this person that's not quite who we really are inside. It, it leaves people feeling empty and searching for more. Well, it may also be a challenge of youth, you know, having a beautiful body and walking down the street and having you want people want you and feeling the power of that is very maybe meaningful at 19 when you're exploring your sexuality and getting to know how where you fit in the world. But if you're 44 and you're wandering around, you know, with half your clothes off trying to get attention and that's your primary way of being fed emotionally, then something's off because at that age you might we do need deeper and more meaningful ways of connecting than the admiration of the casual experience. Right. And I think that's a significant contributor or contribution to the the loneliness that people feel. Just if they're gradually get disconnected from the affirmation that they're so seeking. Now, to bring it back again to the gay community, I, I, how many people say they're just so lonely and isolated, not, not seen anywhere? They, they become invisible as they get older in the streets. That's us. I think we walked down the street recently, David. I don't think anyone looked at us but each other. You know, once your hair. But you know that, I want to say that is a universal human experience. I've had so many women say to me, I don't feel like anyone notices me anymore. I have had so many gay men say to me, you know, when I was in my 30s, in my 40s, but now nobody, it's like I've disappeared. And, you know, I think that's an acceptance, you know, that our pleasures and our validation are going to come from a deeper level as we're older. And we have to find more meaningful ways like sharing our wisdom or sharing our wealth or <laughs> that are probably going to get us some attention than, uh, or maybe just being good people than sharing our bodies because nobody really wants our bodies that much anymore. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. It's, it's about learning how to do this at a more mature level and with different deep, deeper meanings of that sheer physical appearance. There's a lot more to us than that. But I think helping our clients understand that there's more to them than just that feature as well is, is important. And I think a big piece of that for me personally, and also for the clients that that I work with is that there's nothing wrong with what they need. You know, when I had sex with a lot of strangers, when I was doing drugs and all that, I, you know, I could look back and say what a horrible person I was. I can't believe I did. I still have the same needs. I'm a really needy guy. Uh, I need a lot of people to validate me. But now I write books. Now I stand on a stage and teach people. And when I stand in front of a few hundred people, I get a lot of needs met. If they like what I had to say, I don't have to have sex with them one at a time. And my needs have not changed, nor have the need to be for them to be met. But how I get them met and how I seek to get that validation and attention is everything. Because with shame, it just happens in dark places. And when you can celebrate the fact that, you know, I'm a little more needy than everyone else, you can go out there and get all that validation for doing a great job in life. 
And you can start doing things that are so much more productive and what a, a great gift to the universe, you know, in terms of going out and, and teaching and healing and doing great things. So it's a lot less, it feels a lot less selfish somehow. Well, beyond that, I want to say to the selfish drug addicts and sex addicts out there, or those who feel like, you know, maybe I don't have a problem because I can, and I know lots of functional drug addicts and sex addicts. A lot of, I think what the healing process is about beyond, I can have a relationship, I can focus on my work, whatever, is beginning to find your own creativity and, and voice. One of the things I love about Steve Jobs was uh, he did a, a, a speech for Stanford graduates back in the 2000s, and he talked to them about, you know, how he'd gotten where he was and what, and basically, you know, he really just talks about that voice inside of you that you have to follow no matter what. And unfortunately, I think, you know, drugs and alcohol and and hypersexuality and, and the avoidance of deep, meaningful relationships is a off-road from what could be that voice inside of you that you want to find, because this is a big, big distraction from that. Well, we are out of time. This went fast. What fun to talk about this stuff with you. I hope you'll come back. We can do it again. Thank you, sir. Can I tell them how to find me if they want to find me? Please. Okay. So, uh, hey guys, I'm Dr. Rob Weiss. I've written a few books. You can find my books on Amazon. The book I wrote for gay men is called Cruise Control. I wrote it in 2005 and then again in 2013 for gay men with compulsive and addictive sexual issues. And I think it's a pretty darn good guide for understanding. And David's books and I kind of pair together. Uh, if you want to meet with me or talk with me, I do a free online show every week and I have for years. And that is on uh, sexandrelationshiphealing.com. Once a week, you can find me there. You can find me on intherooms.com once a week. I do service and volunteer two hours a week of free time so that anybody in the world who has a question for me can ask their questions. And if you want to write a note, I'm Rob at seekingintegrity.com. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Fawcett. Wonderful. Thank you, Rob. Take care. Bye for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.